Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. In Iowa, some voters wrestled with this question. Do I vote with my heart or do I vote for the person I think can beat Trump? New Hampshire Democrats could debate the same question at their primary on Tuesday. The most important thing is that we have a Democratic president. So whoever the nominee is, I will work for and I will support. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll start with the debacle in Iowa and head to New Hampshire. Then, identity politics in the 2020 presidential race. What does it mean that the Democratic Party has positioned itself as one of inclusion, and yet the candidates of color, the women struggled with raising enough money to be viewed as a credible candidate? Plus, what would you do if you were given $1,000 a month? One family answered that question after candidate Andrew Yang gave them his proposed universal basic income. Tuition payment came. It was very relaxing knowing I had that money in the bank. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Wow. It was quite the debacle at the Democratic Iowa caucuses on Monday, from delayed results to an app that didn't do its job. On top of that, the race was tight with former Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Senator Bernie Sanders at the top. Then came Senator Elizabeth Warren, former Vice President Joe Biden, and Senator Amy Klobuchar. We've asked two reporters who were there in Iowa to join us and talk about the scene and how the caucuses could impact the New Hampshire primary, which happens on Tuesday. Anthony Brooks is senior political reporter at WBUR in Boston, and Henry Epp is a reporter and host at Vermont Public Radio. Thank you both so much for joining me. Hi there. Thanks. Anthony, let's start with you. When you were there in Iowa talking to voters ahead of the caucuses, was there something that surprised you or stood out? Yeah, I mean, I think what stood out was just how many voters were really undecided right up until the last minute. And and I sort of explained this by this idea that folks were sort of tying themselves in knots uh, about whether I vote my heart or do I vote for the person who I think other people think are more viable or more electable. And you would hear that again and again and again. And uh, here's an example. I met uh, Matt McNeil at a Warren event in Iowa City on Saturday. Now, keep in mind, Saturday, this was the end of the day Saturday, so just a day and a half before the actual caucus. He told me he was still looking for a candidate who could unite the country and was still undecided who that would be. So you don't have a whole lot of time left to make up your mind, right? No. <laughs> this is crunch time. <laughs> this is crunch time. All right. Going to be hearing from other candidates in the next 48 hours? Amy Klobuchar will be in town tomorrow, so we'll go there. My plan is to rewatch at least one of the debates over the next uh, 48 hours and then do some additional reading, but then, yeah. All right. And, Morgan, I was literally hearing sort of sentiments like that inside a caucus room in downtown Des Moines on caucus night. I mean, people were really having a hard time making up their mind. I imagine that's got to be stressful. I wonder, are you hearing about the same sort of um, feeling from New Hampshire voters? 
to be to be fair, I haven't been up to New Hampshire yet since I've been back, but I think it's fair to say that the same kind of dynamic is taking place. Okay, Henry, you were following Senator Sanders' campaign. What was the mindset of his supporters in Iowa? His supporters seemed really confident, and they had reason to be. Sanders, uh, the Vermont senator, had a really strong operation in Iowa. What I was really wondering going into this was whether Sanders supporters would consider voting for whoever the Democratic nominee is in the general election, even if that isn't Bernie Sanders. If you spend enough time on Twitter, you kind of get the sense that there's a lot of Sanders supporters who might not support the Democrat if it's not Bernie Sanders or just might not vote at all. Uh, But what I found is that a number of voters, at least in Iowa, who I spoke to said the opposite. Uh, Here's Josh Andrews, a college student from Sioux City, Iowa. I spoke to him at a Sanders rally in Cedar Rapids uh, on Saturday. Um, if Sanders is not the Democratic nominee, would you support the Democratic nominee in the general? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And would you give money or volunteer? I would for... volunteer. I would phone bank. I would do anything to help defeat Donald Trump. And then a small number, just like one or two uh, who I spoke to, said it would really depend on who the nominee is and would not commit to supporting the Democratic nominee if it's not Bernie Sanders. It's hard to look at what happened in Iowa and and not see it as a debacle. And, you know, not not only does it make voters question the integrity of elections, but Anthony, this again calls into question Iowa's standing as the state that kicks off the primary season. Yeah, I mean, as you know, Morgan, there's been a lot of talk over the years about New Hampshire and Iowa. As, and the question is why these two states, they don't represent the diversity of, of, the, of America as a whole. So why do they get all of this power? And I think the debacle in Iowa um, really sort of focused attention anew on that. And of course, there's a lot of talk and a lot of concern about this app that, that uh, caused the problem. But I sort of look at it as... You know, the app was like, um, you know, putting an app on the feed bag of a horse and buggy because the, 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 the caucus itself is such a strange and old fashioned way to pick a nominee. And that was really driven home to me on election night uh, when I actually spent time in Des Moines at a caucus precinct and just to watch them herding 900 people around into different groups and breaking out in the first alignment and the second alignment and explaining the new rules. And and then we know what happened later on the evening with the problem with the app and reporting it. But it just made me think this is such a strange way to pick a candidate when we actually know how to, um, you know, gather the sense of what voters want by just casting a ballot. And, uh, and, you know, the other thing about Iowa, too, is it disenfranchises so many people because not a lot of people can come out. You know, people who work nights, people who drive taxis, people who are maybe poor and don't have a means to get to a caucus site. So it's not the most democratic way. If I could just jump in there on the accessibility issue. Uh, I mean, you know, I went to a caucus where a mom was there with two young children and she stayed for the whole thing, but was really, you know, seemed to be struggling with this time commitment. I also saw someone who showed up to the caucus, you know, a couple minutes after seven o'clock and wasn't allowed to be part of the caucus because she didn't make it on time. Is there any indication that these complaints could actually gain traction this time around that people might question the way caucuses are working or that they might question Iowa and New Hampshire standing as first in the nation? I mean, I think the questions are there, and I think a lot of folks are are raising them. Um, The questions are sort of perennial, though. And uh, New Hampshire and Iowa obviously are deeply committed to holding on to this status as first in the nation, and they'll do a lot to, to retain that.
part of the big kind of question mark of the 2020 election is will Democratic voters be energized and show up? And based on Iowa, Henry, how do you, how are things looking? You know, it's hard to say if Iowa is a predictor, but the initial numbers coming out uh, looks like Iowa uh, turnout was closer to 2016 levels, uh, which was a disappointment. Uh, they were hoping for turnout that was more on the level of 2008, which uh, set records. Um, we don't have those final turnout numbers yet as we're recording this. I would say anecdotally, again, going to this one uh, caucus that I attended, which was in Ankeny, just uh, outside of Des Moines, a suburb, uh, the chair there I spoke to beforehand, and he was expecting 300 people. They had booked this space that had capacity for uh, over 400. And then when they did the final count, when everyone got there, there were 195 people. So just under 200, quite a bit lower uh, than what they were expecting. Uh, Obviously, this is just one caucus. But, you know, it it does indicate that people did not show up in the numbers that the party was hoping for. Well, yeah, that, that's that seems a lot lower. Um, Buttigieg and Sanders are at the top right now. We don't have the final results, um, but they're winning the most delegates as of the time of this taping. And Warren, it looks like, is in third. Um, moving forward, Anthony, is, is she in trouble? Well, clearly she didn't get the result that she wanted out of Iowa. This was a disappointing result uh, for Warren. On the other hand, it wasn't completely surprising because her poll numbers had been sort of heading south uh, leading up to, to the caucus. You know, traditionally, it's it's believed that, you know, two, possibly three candidates kind of get a ticket out of Iowa. But Buttigieg and Sanders obviously got their tickets. Warren is kind of right on the edge there. Um, you know, I'd say that if she doesn't sort of have an impressive uh, performance in New Hampshire uh, next week, her campaign could be in a little bit of trouble. On the other hand, the campaign, even before Iowa, was making the case that they are set up for a long haul. And they point out that Iowa and New Hampshire uh, only represent a very small percentage of the total amount of delegates that they need. Here's a little bit of what she said. This fight will stretch across all 57 states and territories that make up this great nation until we unite together as a party in Milwaukee. Now, Morgan, obviously, um, she wants to believe that, but it has to be said that Warren was the first into this campaign among the major candidates. She has a lot of money and a lot of organization in other states. So I think it's too soon to um, write her off. But that was clearly a disappointing result for her in Iowa. Okay, so on Tuesday, New Hampshire residents go to the polls for the first primary in the nation. And Henry, polling in New Hampshire has Sanders in the lead. Is his campaign adjusting its ground game at all following Iowa? I'm not sure that they're adjusting at all, but they are really emphasizing that they have a very strong ground game in New Hampshire. Uh, They put out a statement this week saying uh, they say they have 14,000 volunteers and 17 offices around the state. So clearly uh, trying to emphasize that they have this very large operation in New Hampshire. Uh, So they seem really confident uh, that they can pull out a win in, in New Hampshire. Henry Epp is a reporter and host for Vermont Public Radio, and Anthony Brooks is senior political reporter for WBUR in Boston. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks. My pleasure, Morgan. As we transition from Iowa to New Hampshire, WBUR's Bob Oaks and Wilder Fleming checked in with a number of New Hampshire voters about where they stand. Melanie Levesque is a state senator from Brookline. She says she'll vote for Biden on Tuesday's primary. 
But she'll move on if he's not the nominee. The most important thing is that we have a Democratic president. So whoever the nominee is, I will work for and I will support. Al Cantor from Concord agrees, but he's not a fan of Sanders, the current New Hampshire frontrunner. From my point of view, I think uh, Donald Trump would love to have Bernie Sanders as his opposition. The Republicans will label whoever is running for the Democrats as a socialist. So it really serves it up on a very easy platter for them when the candidate himself declares himself a socialist. I think he would be the least likely winner among the major Democrats. But he acknowledges that the other Democratic candidates have been cautious to take a swing at Sanders in the primary. Because the folks who love Bernie have been roused to dislike the Democratic Party establishment so much. Mm-hmm. That's Eva Castillo chiming in. She's an immigrant advocate from Manchester, New Hampshire. But, you know, I got to see a different kind of Bernie in that little meeting that we had in St. Andrew's Church here in Manchester. I've seen him many times at the Labor Day breakfast, and he gets all passionate and starts yelling and screaming. Being a small meeting, you know, he was much calmer. We got to see the humanity behind the candidate. Again, those voices were captured by WBUR's Bob Oaks and Wilder Fleming. Coming up, how identity politics has entered the presidential race so far. From a comment about needing a president whose vision is shaped by the heartland to dwindling candidate diversity as the Democratic field shrinks. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. New Hampshire is home to a growing population of refugees from the Himalayan region. And in this year's primary, at least one campaign is focusing a lot more than ever before on getting their votes. New Hampshire Public Radio's Casey McDermott reports. At first, this seems like a pretty typical night at a New Hampshire campaign office. There's volunteers milling around after a presentation from some campaign higher-ups. People are signing up for canvas shifts. But in one corner of the room, a smaller group is listening intently, getting a parallel set of instructions for their final weeks of the campaign. In Nepali. My name is Susmik. Um, I'm a field organizer here, so I organize here in Manchester and Hooksett. Susmik Lama's family belonged to an indigenous community in Nepal and moved to the United States when she was younger. She's pretty new to politics, but she's found that her personal background has helped her in a lot of ways in her job as an organizer for the Bernie Sanders campaign. One thing that I've learned as a pre-med student is to uh, like recognize sort of like people's socioeconomic background, cultural background, to have that conversation. And so that's the sort of thing that I bring here. The Sanders campaign is relying on folks like Susmik to help bridge connections with an often overlooked voting bloc, New Hampshire's Nepalese community. Sometimes that means taking the extra time to help volunteers for whom English is a second language feel more comfortable knocking on doors or making phone calls to potential supporters. Other times, that means helping to translate campaign materials. When I signed up to 
be a translator for some of the documents that we made for Iowa. Um, that was the first time I had seen something in uh, politics in Nepali. So that felt pretty cool. For this campaign to include someone from my community and um, immigrant population was like, I don't know, it's a, it was a good experience for me. And the fact that Susmik was recruited to join the Sanders campaign is no accident. Well, when they were just first setting up, he was in the office. Yeah. Um, Tell her that I <laughs> uh, call you and send an email. That's Siraj Budathoki, another Sanders campaign staffer at this organizing event. He's also a former refugee from Bhutan. I've been here in New Hampshire for the last 11 years. Siraj used to lead a local nonprofit that works with refugees from lots of different countries. And that's a big part of what he does now for the Sanders campaign. He's in charge of constituency outreach, which means that he helps the campaign connect with different groups of supporters. And he's made it a priority to make sure that immigrants and refugees aren't taken for granted. Democratic Party think that votes of immigrants and refugees that are sure vote for them, and that's the mistake. And they don't tend to go to those people. They think that they're going to come to them, uh, vote for them, but they never go to their community and talk to them. That kind of focused outreach and the longstanding relationships that Siraj brought with him to the campaign has helped Sanders line up endorsements from leaders not only in New Hampshire's Bhutanese community, but also the Rohingyan community, the Congolese community, and more. Refugees and immigrants who resettle here can become eligible to vote after applying for U.S. citizenship. While they might make up only a small percentage of New Hampshire's electorate, Suraj says there are still thousands of potential voters who belong to these communities. And numbers aside, he says it's just good politics to reach out to them. When we leave someone behind, that undermines the value of democracy. One of the Nepalese volunteers who stepped up to help the campaign is Bisnu Lama. New Hampshire, I've been here like about six years, but I've been here in America for about 26 years. He signed up for some volunteer shifts to help get out the vote locally for the upcoming primary. But he's also been doing a lot of his own organizing outside of the campaign by word of mouth. I have been always talking to my friends, wherever I know, all not only Manchester, Nasua, Merrimack, wherever, Nepalese, not only in New Hampshire. Like, I have a bunch of friends and family living in out of state, like other states, like California, Michigan. Susmik Lama, the campaign organizer, says the Nepalese community has stepped up in lots of ways, spreading the word on Facebook, offering up their homes as volunteer headquarters, and more. My parents make food. Um, I just uh, had signed up someone to make some food for us. So it's going to be busy. It's going to be fun. And in a competitive primary like this year's, every bit helps. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Casey McDermott. Our next guest is Kalila Brown-Dean. She's a political science professor at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut and author of the book Identity Politics in the United States, which came out last fall. Professor Brown-Dean, welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me back. So first, before we get to this year's election, what exactly does identity politics mean to you? Well, I think for many people, identity politics is this dirty term, right? We use it to talk about other groups and how other groups handle this political process. But in the book, I say that identity politics is really as American as apple pie. It's all about how we see ourselves, how we see other people, and the kind of tools that we have to reinforce those distinctions. So whether that identity is region of the country, our religious affiliation, or even what sports teams we like. It tells us a lot about those interactions across and within groups. 
And you write that our country has been rooted in identity politics from its founding. Can you talk about that? Sure. So when this country was being founded, that identity of being distinct from and separate from the crown is what helped people sort of forge this vision, this identity of who could be a part of the colony, who could be a part of what we now know as America, that identity of how indigenous people were mistreated within that formation. So that even as people said this was a country founded upon religious freedom, we know that in fact in many colonies, you could not become a citizen based on your religious identity. So that in the state of Rhode Island, for example, Aaron Lopez could not become a citizen because he was Jewish and he had to pursue American citizenship in another state. All of that is about identity and who we think is compatible with our vision of American citizenship. So it's kind of transactional, like whose lives matter and whose don't. Definitely. Whose lives matter? Who can contribute to the American enterprise? And also who we think supports whatever narrow vision that we have. So that even as we say, yes, we've made tremendous growth in this country in terms of including more groups, there's always this negotiation about, you know, who can be included at what expense and how can we narrow who is in that vision. Okay, so let's turn to the primaries. I'm wondering if you could talk about a few key moments so far that have stood out to you where identity politics are heavily at play. I think particularly if we look at the Democratic crop of contenders, not just those who are still in the race, but those who started. Many people ask, what does it mean that the Democratic Party has positioned itself as one of inclusion, and yet the candidates of color, the women struggled with raising enough money to be viewed as a credible candidate? What does it mean that if we look at those who are still in the race, you don't have as many people of color represented? Andrew Yang stands out, for example, as one who has been able to overcome some of those challenges. And on a another level, what we're hearing increasingly is this notion that a president for America needs to come from the heartland, as if the Midwest is this magical place where uh, values and affiliations are nurtured in a way that we don't see in New England. And so that language of real America, of the real American value, becomes a dog whistle for people who believe that this country is moving in a direction that either over looks them or does not represent them. And it was Pete Buttigieg, right, who said, we need a president whose values are placed in the heartland. Do you think um, this was an intentional strategy to reach particularly white voters? I think that many candidates are always on this sort of, you know, Sisyphean mission to claim this particular cohort of voters. But I want us to take a step back and ask, what does it mean that for Mayor Pete to be mayor of this very small town in Indiana, to also be a veteran, to have that military service, to be openly gay, and all of those different identities challenges the exclusions that we've seen in this country for so long? 
So on the one hand, you can have a candidate say, look, I may not look like who the founders envisioned to lead our country, but I have shown that my works are important. And at the same time, use that language of Midwestern values as sort of a way of being a signal to a particular group of white voters that he's acceptable, but still overlooking the challenges within the Midwest around issues of race, class, increasingly immigration, and also gender. Do you think this is like a political strategy or is it unconscious or is it too hard to know? I think it depends on who you're asking, right? So for many people, it is a conscious, deliberate strategy. If we think about the Super Bowl, for example, and the two campaign ads that ran from Mike Bloomberg and from President Trump, it was intentional that both of those political campaign ads featured black women in them because all of the data says that black women will be a key decisive voting block in this election. You cannot win the primary. You cannot win the general election vote without courting black women as a voting base. So when all the data says this is who we need to target, then you see candidates making those appeals in very different ways. If the data says that white voters feel like all of the demographic change in this country leaves them behind or makes them feel defensive, then as, as a candidate, you have to speak to that in a way that is palatable to the general public, but can still get you votes. Yeah, let's talk about this idea of a a voting block. You write that, quote, recognizing differences and organizing around shared identities isn't inherently bad. And then at the same time, when pundits talk about the so-called black vote, the Latino vote, the female vote, is there there's this risk of uh, making these groups seem monolithic um, and, and not acknowledging, you know, the inherent differences that exist within a group. How do you how do you balance those two things? I think it is important to understand that there is tremendous diversity that exists within groups and across groups. And so when one talks about black votes or talks about the Latinx community and votes, you have to also acknowledge differences around things like country of origin. So what most Cuban-American voters focus in in deciding their partisanship and ideology may not be the same for people that are coming from Ecuador. So you have to look at those internal cleavages. And here's an example that comes up often. People talk about the evangelical vote, right? Evangelical voters vote in this way or hear the preferences that they have, when really what they're focusing on is white evangelical voters. So we can look at intersectionality in the terms of that, you know, institutions in our American public sphere shape which identities get activated and how those identities matter. But it also means that when most people show up into the voting booth, they show up as individuals who are still aware of how their choice will impact their group, however they configure that. Do you feel like um, there are some candidates who have managed to acknowledge the intersectionality and have successfully navigated that? I think it's a work in progress. And and I think the thing that I have noticed the most, you know, as a political scientist, but also as a concerned voter, is that every candidate in this race has had a misstep. 
And I think that's an important reminder for all of us that we're all on this journey of understanding the complexities of identity, how they play out on the campaign trail, but also how they play out in our own lives. The greatest success that candidates have had is being willing to be wrong and to acknowledge and apologize for that. So instead of focusing on Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders having a private conversation and, you know, whether it was said that a woman could not win, why don't we take a step back and think about how many conversations we've heard in our own lives of people saying that same thing, whether it's because they believe that, you know, their religious tradition tells them that women should not be leaders or because they believe that patriarchy is so rampant in our community and in our country that it would make it hard for a woman to emerge. That's when we have to have standards for our political leaders, but more importantly, standards for ourselves. So the first two contests are in states that are mostly white. Iowa just held the first caucuses in the country. And then on February 11th, New Hampshire will hold the first primary. These two states hold a lot of power because the candidates that voters choose could get the momentum they need to potentially win the nomination. And do you see that as a problem? I think it's problematic that who will be the leader of our country, and by extension, the leader of the free world, is often predetermined in areas that don't represent demographically the whole of the American population with all of its wonderful diversity in so many different ways. And so what does it mean that so many candidates, because they were polling low in places like Iowa or or New Hampshire, or because they couldn't get enough money to continue their campaign in those places, candidates dropped out before a single ballot had been cast. And it's, you know, the thing I tell my students all the time, the rules of the game matter. So this is in no way a way of knocking Iowa or suggesting that people in New Hampshire don't have similar concerns as people in Washington, D.C. or in Birmingham, Alabama. But it's about saying that if, in fact, we want to have a more inclusive democracy, then we have to look at the rules that determine this. What do you think would be a more inclusive approach to primary elections? I think that primary elections, first and foremost, the fact that most young people do not identify with either of the two major political parties, and yet in the overwhelming majority of states in this country, if you are an independent voter, you don't have a say in the primary, that is a major step. And it is one where we can see what would happen if those rules change. And if we continue with this process of primaries and, you know, having a caucus or primary so early in the calendar, then let's choose a state that overall looks more like the picture of the United States and do that. Now, I understand federalism. It would require some changes to state constitutions. But I think that for candidates, for people who want to see themselves as viable, to be able to acknowledge that. That means that we all have to look at who benefits from the process we have. Is there a state you have in mind? You know, I think about states like North Carolina, right, that have this uh, amazing balance of rural communities, of urban communities, of communities on the cusp of dramatic change, of places like Durham, North Carolina, where you see a growing uh, immigrant population settling in areas where previously they had not chosen to do so. You see manufacturing, you see farming, and you also see this sort of changing infrastructure there. All of the things that we say are policy 
priorities for this country, climate change, health care, you know, having a job infrastructure. We see that in that state in a very real firsthand way. Last question. What do you think it would take to get voters to think outside their own identities and interests when going to the polls? You know, it's a tough question because I think that part of being a human, whether you're talking about in the United States or you're talking about uh, the UK with Brexit, is that we are socialized in a way where identity matters. And what I hope that people are willing to do is to say, yes, my identity matters to how I vote. Again, however I configure that identity, whether it is a group that I am born into or one that I have chosen to affiliate with, that we can recognize that and prioritize that, but also understand the privilege that is embedded in being able to make that choice, that no one has to strip off their identity when they walk into a voting booth, but to ask the very simple question, who benefits from this vote that I'm about to make, who may be at a disadvantage, and what is it that we owe to ourselves and to our country? Kalila Brown-Dean is a political science professor at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut and author of the book Identity Politics in the United States. Professor Brown-Dean, thank you so much for talking. Thank you. It's the first time three women have been on the Democratic primary ballot. New Hampshire Public Radio's Daniela Ali spent some time talking with voters in the state about gender and why it matters. For the past few months, one house on Hamburg's busiest road has stood out. It didn't just have one candidate sign. For several months, it had three. Amy, Warren, and um, Kamala Harris. This is Willa Coyle Wright. She's in the fifth grade. She and her older sister, Angel, have been paying close attention to this primary. They've watched the debates and have even gone out canvassing with their dad. And they've noticed something about the American presidency. It was even visible on a placemat in their house. This is Angel. I remember looking at it and seeing no women on it and being really surprised that there's no women that have been president. The Coyle Wrights frequently talk about gender and sexism. Their dad, Jeremy Coyle Wright, is getting his master's while staying at home to take care of the kids. And their mom is an interventional cardiologist, a field made up of just 4% women. They're all proud of the work their mom does. I don't know, I think it's cool that she's the leader and she's like the teacher and she's teaching everyone. And so sometimes those are stories about, you know, mom coming home and having a, getting a a surprise response from patients that were like, you're the one who replaced my, you know, put a stint in my heart or replaced my heart, however, things like that. And and then the kids being like, well, why, why were they surprised by that? Jeremy Coilwright says they all agree that if a woman were to become president, that could encourage more women into positions of politics and leadership. And that would be good for the country, for both women and men. I think also it's a, a piece of justice to have parity in terms of representation and leadership. And so, again, that's not something we've ever had in terms of having parity with women in power. The Coilwrights have decided who they're supporting, so they only have Amy Klobuchar signs in their yard now. They think she's the most electable. But at the end of the day, with talented women running for the presidency, Jeremy says it just makes sense to vote for one of the women. And so amid the cluster of green signs is one Jeremy's made by hand. It reads, get out of the way, Joe and Bernie and billionaires. I mean, I really liked seeing that sign about um, getting the men out of the way so that the women can, um, you know, 
have a better chance of getting elected. This is Mary Jane Mulligan, a state representative from Hanover. She says she sees that sign every time she's driving out of town. Mulligan describes herself as a baby boomer, and she also thinks a country that's majority female should be led by a woman. But she finds some of her peers are reticent to talk about how gender factors in to deciding who to vote for. There, some will say I'm sexist because I want to put a woman in the White House. Um, others will say, you know, um, oh, I don't vote for a woman. Uh, I don't vote for anybody based on their gender. I base it on their um, ideas. A poll out this week reports that nearly 71 percent of Democrats and independents say they would be comfortable with a woman candidate themselves, but only 33 percent believe their neighbors would be. It's that moment where you're like, I just wish that you could close your eyes and I could read you resumes. And then I just want you to blindly pick something and then like, oh, surprise, it happens to be a woman. It's Amy Klobuchar. It's, you know, Elizabeth Warren. Brittany Joyce and her husband, Brian, have been knocking on doors for Elizabeth Warren for the last several months. The two weren't always Warren supporters. They started out as gung-ho for Joe Biden. But after watching the first debate, learning more about the candidate's platform and connecting with Warren's personal story, the two decided they were all in for her. As they've been knocking on doors, though, and talking with friends and family, they're encountering what they see as sexism, like when a relative said they didn't like Warren's hair or a friend didn't like her tone. I do want to point out that we would never say that about a man, would you? Brittany says she's getting tired of comments like this that put women under a microscope. She says it's something she and other ambitious women have experienced for a long time, going all the way back to high school. You would run against like the really popular boys, you know, who had no experience, but they were loud and they played sports and they made friends. And you're like, but I've earned this. Like, I've done everything. I've planned every car wash. I've painted every poster. I've been to every school board meeting and like... Why does this happen? You know, why is this just a popularity contest? In this way, she says, the canvassing, the conversations, and finding those nuggets she can push back on, all that serves a higher purpose, getting people to see that a woman can lead the country and trying to change the way that we talk about gender. That was Daniela Ali, a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. After the break, we'll compare the presidential candidate's climate change proposals And Andrew Yang gave one New Hampshire family $1,000 every month for a year. We'll see how the family was impacted. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. A recent poll from WBUR found New Hampshire voters want the Democratic presidential candidates to talk about policy. The top issues for voters were health care, including drug pricing and Medicare. Second came the environment and climate change. Some voters are saying they want candidates to acknowledge the threat of climate change and propose ways to fix it, like Cynthia Harriman from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And it's such a gradual thing. That's why we need even more attention on it, because it doesn't do that kind of daily nagging that some of the other big problems do. We are fighting for the survival of the planet 
earth. What we have to dispel is this idea that it's happening 100 years from now. It's happening right now. Countries are at risk of vanishing in low-lying areas. We better be willing to put the resources into it because the alternative is unthinkable. And of course, the 2020 Democratic candidates all have plans to tackle climate change. Annie Ropeek is the environment reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio, and she joins us to talk about how the proposals differ. Annie, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. So all Democratic candidates have set a net zero carbon emissions target for the U.S. What does that mean and whose deadlines are the most aggressive? So a net zero goal uh, does not necessarily mean that we have no carbon emissions ongoing in the country. It just means that we're taking out or offsetting somehow as much or more than we're putting in. So uh, on paper, the most aggressive deadline is Elizabeth Warren's um, at 2030. So that's 10 years from now. Most of the other candidates are aiming for more like 2040 to 2050. But these deadlines can be kind of misleading. Um, Different candidates are really measuring their progress in different ways. Um, Most of them do agree, though, on why it is important to move quickly. So they say it's because it's what the science says, that we really need to decarbonize as much as possible within that next, you know, decade or two or three time frame. Uh, And the faster we move to mitigate it, you know, the more protected we'll be from those effects. Okay, let's talk about the Green New Deal now. Which candidates have signed on to it? So they all, most all of them will say something like that the U.S. needs a Green New Deal. You know, they use it as more of a concept. But um, most of them, or at least the largest number of them, have said they actually support the Green New Deal resolution. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Tulsi Gabbard, Amy Klobuchar, and Deval Patrick are all in that camp. Others have said they support the Green New Deal as a framework for policy changes. Um, Joe Biden, Tom Steyer, Andrew Yang, and Michael Bloomberg are in that column. And then Michael Bennett is the only candidate who said outright that he does not support the Green New Deal. Now, I mean, it's important to remember the Green New Deal was a resolution. It was not a step-by-step specific. It was a plan, a set of ideas. Um, we have Bernie Sanders, who's really focused the most on it. Um, and that has helped, you know, make his plan extremely progressive in other social areas. The Green New Deal has a lot of focus on labor justice, economic justice, other kinds of um, social factors that climate change can affect, which some candidates have brought into their campaigns more than others. Uh, And it's also made Bernie's price tag for his climate uh, proposals far higher than any other candidates at more than $16 trillion in federal spending. Uh, The next closest candidate is Andrew Yang at under just under $5 trillion. And most other candidates who give a price tag are in the $1 to $3 trillion range. Okay, so talking about, you know, global impacts, every Democratic presidential candidate has said they would rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, which President Trump took us out of. What about a tax on carbon? You know, who wants to make companies and consumers who emit more greenhouse gases pay for those emissions? So many candidates say that a carbon price or carbon tax should be part, but not all of their solutions. A couple of them, Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard, have actually backed off supporting a carbon tax because they say it wouldn't do enough fast enough. Um, But most candidates uh, who do support the idea of a carbon tax say that it is one of the main ways they would pay for their plans, along with other kinds of tax reform, and notably, along with uh, ending subsidies for the fossil fuel industry, which can you know be to the tune of billions or trillions of dollars. We've been focusing on the Democratic candidates, but where does President Trump stand on climate change at this point? 
You know, historically, he has denied that climate change exists. He's called it a hoax. Uh, Lately, you know, he's softened on that a little bit. He'll say that he's concerned about climate change. He'll acknowledge it in interviews. But and then we'll go on to equate, you know, his interest in the issue with his desire for clean air and clean water, which, you know, many policy watchers will point out is is not exactly like a one to one comparison. And he doesn't give any specifics on his plans to address the you know the issue of climate change in that way and then in the meantime his administration has rolled back literally dozens of regulations that uh, scientists and other advocates say could help protect against climate change, prevent further emissions. He's pulled the U.S. out of Paris, as you mentioned. He's advocated for the continued use of coal. It has had a real impact. It's helped reverse this long trend of falling emissions. Those emissions rose again in the U.S. and globally for the first time in years in 2018, right at the key moment where scientists say they really need to be falling rapidly. And so that's something that, you know, Democratic candidates and others, including uh, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, who's a Republican running against Trump, will say, you know, that one of the number one things Democrats and people like Weld argue you could do to fix this problem would be to get President Trump out of office. Annie Ropeek is the environment reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. Annie, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Morgan. And Annie put together an explainer with each candidate's climate change proposals. You can check it out at our website. That's nextnewengland.org. How would an extra $12,000 a year change your life? The centerpiece of entrepreneur Andrew Yang's presidential campaign is what he calls the Freedom Dividend. It's a payment of $1,000 every month to every adult in America. To show what it could do, Yang picked a single New Hampshire family to receive the money for one year. That experiment ended in December. So how'd it go? New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bookman went to find out. The Fassi family are Chuck and Jody and a college-age daughter named Janelle. They have a dog and a savings account and a dining room table that rarely gets used. There's a history of mental illness on Chuck's side, and he struggled at times. In 2017, he lost a decent-paying job with a chemical company. And then he had, like, a breakdown because he couldn't really understand what happened to him and what we were going to do now for money. He couldn't handle it, so he went into the hospital for a week. You know, you got a dollar in college. You don't have an income. You know, you have bills coming in. um, You know, no livelihood to pay them, and it, it does a lot to your psyche. You know, it makes you feel like, you know, you're less of a, you know, you're not even a human being. They sold Chuck's Camaro. They cut back on unnecessary spending. Jody, who cleans houses, even suspended their public radio contributions, if you can believe that. Then in the fall of 2018, just as Chuck landed a new job, their daughter Janelle saw Andrew Yang give a speech in Keene. He was looking for a family who could serve as a test case for universal basic income. Because I didn't really know who Andrew Yang was when Janelle kind of came to us saying, hey, there's this Asian guy running for president and he wants to give everybody $1,000 a month and he wants to start with you. I'm like, okay. Universal basic income, or UBI, comes with no strings attached. The concept has had a range of backers over the years, from Thomas Paine in the 18th century to free market economist Milton Friedman. Under Yang's plan, everyone over 18 would qualify. To implement the policy on a nationwide scale would cost close to $3 trillion a year. Yang is proposing paying for that with a value-added tax, which is common in Europe. Putting aside whether this is smart policy or even feasible, and plenty of people don't think it is, 
Yang handed Jody the first check for $1,000 on New Year's Eve of 2019. So we just kept putting it in the bank. And then when Janelle, of course, when her tuition payment came, it was very, very relaxing knowing I had that money in the bank. The year of free money ended in December. Of the 12 grand, the Fassies put about $10,000 of it toward college. That's money Janelle now won't have to borrow in loans. The Fassies don't have receipts for how they spent the other 2000 bucks. But they recognize ways, small ways, that the UBI changed them. Even going to the grocery store, you know, we were without thinking. We were like, oh, we want that, we want that, we, you know. So. Give, me, give me some examples. What were you buying at the grocery store that you wouldn't normally have bought? Well, our daughter is very organic, so she buys expensive peanut butter, uh, kale. Kale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I have the special yogurt that's like a dollar a piece. That was Janelle there with the fancy yogurt. Chuck also went a bit hippie at the grocery store, buying kombucha. So Chucky would sneak that into the grocery cart any time that we were at the grocery store. And I kept saying, okay, you know when this money stops, this is going to stop. Because $8, $9 for one bottle, we can't afford that. The Freedom Dividend, as Yang likes to call his UBI plan, also prompted Chuck to try something he heard could be good for people with anxiety. When we first started receiving it, um, I actually um, started taking improv classes for my mental health, and that was 100 bucks a month. Um, and I know that you know, getting the freedom dividend, um, we noticed that we were doing things that we normally, if we weren't receiving it, we weren't going to do. With an extra $12,000, the Fassi family chose college tuition, healthy food, and improv classes. It's easy to imagine other middle-class families doing the same, a mix of the financially prudent with some extra set aside for the things that make life worth living. It's exactly what Andrew Yang has in mind. I asked him about the Fassies after a rally he held in Concord last week. I think Chuck even worked on some kombucha and some home crafts. So there, there are many things that happened that were very positive with the Freedom Dividend. And this is the trickle-up economy, and the Fassi family demonstrates just how positive it can be. One of Yang's arguments for UBI is that it would provide a boost, not just a financial one, but a mental one, to all of America. Chuck agrees. You know, if people aren't living in this this scarcity, that maybe, you know, it'll turn maybe the mental health of this country around a little bit. After a year of free money, the Fassies now have to dial it back. Less kale, a daunting college tuition bill coming— the financial freedom of the last 12 months is all gone. To them, it was well spent. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. That's our show this week. Next week, a study finds gunshot survivors have more long-term health issues than people in car crashes. We'll talk to a survivor. And the joys and anxiety of ice climbing in New England. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor, and the executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Lori Mack, Glenn Alexander, Chris Albertine, and Emily Quirk. Music is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.